also address the lack of validated biomarkers. And that's the second big thing uh, that we've tried to discuss here at the podcast. And I think through the work that Mazen, Nureddin, Neymar Khoury, Rod Lumba, and also Alina Al have been doing around imaging biomarkers, MR, uh, the field has uh, just evolved. And we are clearly, it feels like, uh, taking big steps forward. It's interesting you should mention that because shifting away from this episode to some of the other things that we're going to be replaying for people this week, on Saturday, we're going to be looking at three conversations, three little 15, 18 minute snippets from episodes that were extremely well downloaded. The biggest one, of course, was the one with you and Stephen summarizing what you heard from Scott Friedman and Lars Johansson at the Paris Nash. But one of the other two is specifically about that. It's what was the takeaway from AASLD 2021 on the issue of the need to improve biomarkers and diagnostics in general, but really uh, non-histopathological, um, both MRE and the liquid biomarkers. And yeah, I think that's been another major theme in the, in the field over the last two years, right? Yeah, absolutely. You know, if you just revisit the last ILC, it's not just that we're in the position to actually define those diagnostic biomarkers, but we're starting to discuss prognostic biomarkers with health that has been had, that received approval by the FDA in certain populations, histology at baseline, or the whole data sets that we've discussed with the work that's been done by Hannes Hackström's uh, group or recently presented by Quentin Alancy with regards to outcomes in FIP4 or high categories, the differentiation between liver outcomes and cardiovascular outcomes. That feels like light years away from what we were thinking and knowing in 2020 because we're much more focused on, on outcomes, the role of surrogates, which patient population should be included in clinical trials. You know, And if I think back up to our conversations, we had a lot of these aspects were discussed here and in Surfing Nash. And that's what I value the podcast for. It's really state-of-the-art science that's important to the field that's being recapitulated here. Yeah, I agree. And, and frankly, it's a lot of fun. When I decided to do this week's episode, I didn't realize how much fun I was going to have listening to old episodes and saying, gee, people have really you know, changed tunes and thinking about moments and papers that did that and possibly ways that the podcast helped to shape it. Maybe the single most transitional moment this podcast has ever had is not so far from what you're talking about. So we covered Paris Nash. We, we did a retrospective. What was there to learn at Paris Nash, uh, season two, episode 46? And one of these conversations will come up on Saturday, which is why I mention it. And there was a little 12 minute segment in the middle of all that, which was you and Stephen, both of whom had been there, talking about Lars Johansson's presentation and Scott's presentation. Lars being, uh, I think, about digodoxetate and gadolinium. And we put it up as a conversation. It took a week and a half for anybody to download it. The, the first week, its downloads were well below average. But once people started downloading it, they started downloading it like crazy. Let me put that in context. That thing's been downloaded over 1,500 times in the history of this podcast. The second largest number of downloads for an episode or conversation is just over 400. If you took numbers 2, 3, 4, and 5 and you put them together, they don't have 1,500 downloads. So as a result, we then went out and did a whole episode three weeks later with Lars basically reprising his talk. And then the week after that, Scott reprising his. And both of those did really well. And what I came to understand was that becoming a place where people could do exactly what you described, take basic science and talk about it in a way that would translate it into clinical thinking and drug development thinking, was hugely helpful and something there was a real audience for. And our numbers took off after that. And, and our downloads per week have been, oh gosh, uh, they went through a transition of a four, three or four month period at the end of 2001, where they went up by about 50%. They've been up again that much this year. Uh, I think people have listened more. And the first thrust is exactly the one you talked about. Okay, tell me how to take science and 
clinical and patient treatment and roll them all together into a single place I can think. So uh, so, so we're going to play the Scott Friedman episode on Friday the uh, from last year, and then we're going to open Saturday morning with the 46.2 that you and Stephen talking about it. brings us to session three, what Stephen mentioned was one of the fascinating sessions. Uh, it was called Deep Dive into uh, Fibrosis and was uh, chaired by uh, Frank Tucker, a colleague from Berlin, and Manuel Romero Gomez didn't make it. So I think this was the one where Stephen jumped in and actually took over the chair. And there was three talks, one discussing the histological assessment of fibrosis, innovations in that field by Julian uh, Calderaro from France, then one uh, innovations in imaging assessment and fibrosis, Lars Johansson, and, and Scott Friedman finished up again giving a fascinating talk on uh, the molecular evolution and also importantly resolution of fibrosis. What do we know about the immune cell type composition? How is this driven? And what can we learn and actually um, potentially exploit for the best of patients? And I think Stephen shared that session. I'm just going to hand it over to him to maybe uh, highlight from his side and then I can comment on that. Sure. So as Jorn mentioned, three talks, one from a pathologist, one from a, a guy focusing in radiology, and then, of course, Scott Friedman, who was a pioneer in stellate cell mechanism and function. So the first one, entitled Innovations in Histologic Assessment of Fibrosis, I wasn't really sure there was a lot new that came out of that talk, but he said a couple things that I thought were apropos. If it's easy for humans, it's easy for AI. That is really the crux of the entire thing. When we think about artificial intelligence, where we're really making the most advances right now is in fibrosis. It's also the one where pathologists tend to agree the most. Where we're struggling a bit is in ballooning. And that's also where pathologists struggle the most. But at the end of the day, I do think that AI digital pathology will help us reduce variability, increase precision and accuracy, and help us clarify endpoints, at least as long as we're dealing with histology as an endpoint, it will help us a bit in reducing that variability. So where we need to go with that is we need AI to do two things. We need to understand from a fully quantitative assessment of whatever we're assessing, and I'm going to just take collagen for right now. We need to understand on this fully quantitative spectrum, how much of a change represents a one-stage change semi-quantitative. Why? Because we can then link it to an outcome. And ultimately, we want AI digital pathology to predict a clinical outcome. And then we want to transition to non-invasive testing. To me, that's how we're setting up these LOIs with the FDA in the biomarker qualification program uh, is we're saying, for now, we're good being a companion diagnostic. We want to come alongside the pathologist and provide additional helpful information that would help ultimately define the true histopathologic gradient stage that we see under the microscope. And in so doing, we'll increase precision accuracy and reduce variability. So I thought that was the crux of the discussion. Then I think it gets really interesting. For me, the lecture on imaging, which was innovations in imaging assessment in fibrosis, was really cutting edge. And there are now ways using MR where we can measure stellate cell volume and we can measure stellate cell 
activation. And I think that is critical in early stage drug development. If you're an antifibrotic drug, if you think you have antifibrotic activity, then if you do this MRI type of technique, we can assess whether you're downregulating stellate cell activation very quickly within a matter of, of weeks. So I thought that was very interesting. And then maybe one that's more apropos and maybe more ready for prime time is this idea of MRI plus gadahexate or gadolinium. And GAD is taken up by functional hepatocytes. And so if you begin to lose hepatocyte function, by default, it's not taking up GAD. So MRI plus GAD could be a marker of functional hepatocytes and could predict time to decompensation or liver transplant-free survival. And we talk a lot about HEPQUANT and some of these other endocyanin green tests and all these functional assays, HVPG. Why not just do MRI with GAD? We're doing MRI PDFF. We're doing MR elastography. We're getting multi-parametric MRIs. Yes those are non-invasive, no IV infusion type therapies. But if you're in the scanner, put an IV in, shoot some GAD in, get a functional assessment of what's happening, particularly in a cirrhotic trial. To me, that makes sense. He ended by saying 3D imaging. Now, 3D MR elastography looks very, very promising, not only for distinguishing the F1s from F2s and F2s from F3s, but also in identifying NASH versus no NASH. Now, the problem with MR elastography, at least 2D MR elastography, is it doesn't do a great job of distinguishing the milder stages of fibrosis. It's really good at F4s from F3s, relatively good in F3s from F2s, and then it kind of just all kind of falls apart a little bit. There's not a lot of separation if you look at box plots and confidence intervals between a 1 and a 2, and to some degree a 2 and a 3. So that's where 3D imaging could potentially take us to the next step. Problem is, it's still investigational, and only a few sites in the United States have that technology. And then finally, maybe the most exciting of the entire section was the lecture given by Scott Friedman, and it should come as no surprise because he is a quintessential leader in this field, and every time he opens his mouth, it seems like something new and amazing comes out. And that was no different here today or here at the meeting. And, and what he told me that, that in the audience that struck a chord with me and, and maybe actually took me back a little bit was his comment that different stellate cells may have different patterns of expression. And that becomes important because given the heterogeneity of fibrosis response to various mechanisms of action for NASH treatment, you have to begin to question, is it possible that histologic phenotypes of NASH could be the reason why we have different responses. In other words, are these stellate cells being modified genetically, epigenetically, or with diet and nutrition or lifestyle that, that make them unresponsive or more responsive to drugs? So are we dealing with two things? Are we dealing with how well the drug works through its mechanism and then how sensitive a stellate cell is to being modified? And if that's the case, that could be good or bad. We need to understand stellate cell function and its response a little bit more. And that's where the single cell RNA that he spoke so highly of can begin to 
to help us. And anyway, I, I will end there, maybe ask Jorn to straighten it all out for me, where I was a little rough around the edges. But I, but I think that was a tremendous section. I agree, Stephen. Well said and well phrased. And I think I'll just follow up with Scott's talk and saying, I think you mentioned that. He highlighted, you said stellate cells again. In truth, stellate cells have different subsets that can be identified by this high-resolution technology, if you'd like. And there was a great basic science lecture right before that session detailing a little bit of that, where you can go single cell nucleus RNA analysis and actually transcriptome analysis. So you learn about what does each stellate cell do, and there's a number of subsets that you can identify. So it might in the end be a ratio of stellate cell subsets that determines where you are in your pathophysiology, how well you just respond to drug, and that makes, of course, the picture a little bit more complex. You could then break it down again to a common Donna cryomate is maybe it doesn't matter what kills you in the end as long as you're dead, so it comes down to a net effect. Diversity, and I agree here with you, Stephen, the diversity of course, some of the variability we're seeing in response is partially related to that. There are different subsets, and they're not all doing the same thing at the same time. There's probably a dominant aspect, and maybe one day we'll learn to design pharmacotherapy around this. You're absolutely right. The lecture that preceded this section was a phenomenal lecture and really focused on that novel technology looking at single cell assessment. But I remember that one of the things Scott mentioned is that maybe, is it macrophages that potentially can undergo a transdifferentiation to stellate cells? You expressed some concern about this thought about a number of times and he wasn't truly convinced was my take home message. Gotcha. But that was a deep dive into, you want to know where the field's headed, at least in fibrosis and stellate cell biology, that's where it's To single cell? Yes. The power of the tools we're able to apply both in animal models, but also translational has just improved by looking at each cell. You know, you get a complete map of the stellate cells, and of course you need AI to integrate this and see what it means. It's not ready to be translated into clinical trials, but hypothesis generating to support no novel MOAs discovery, I think this is really a step forward. So, Jorn and Stephen, when we talk about subsets of stellate cells, are those different steps on a common pathway, or are those fundamentally different cells? No, no. This is probably this. Uh, this I guess now we need Scott on here. <laughs> uh, <laughs> well, um, I mean, well, let me give you the question behind the question, if that helps. When you think about drug development in a whole bunch of areas going back to small molecule 30 and 40 years ago, right, you started with the idea, for example, that there were adrenal blockers, and then you got to alpha-1s and alpha-2s. It was beta-1s and beta-2s. And every time that you were able to take a cell type and split it, you were able to identify either new, more efficacious targets or ways to fundamentally alter the safety to efficacy ratio of the drug you're talking about. So when you say subsets to stellate cells, I immediately go back to things like that. And I say you can produce much better drugs if you understand what really matters here. On the other hand, if there's stages on a pathway, then that doesn't work the same way really. So that was that was the question behind the question. You know, bottom line, it comes down to, I think this is a snapshot of a functional assessment of that stellate cell. You, you, by using that technology, transcriptomics, what is the cell producing? What is it making? Single cell RNA analysis. They are capable to turn this off and, and potentially change and go into a different subset. The transdifferentiation that Stephen mentioned is about going into a different cell type, which is a little difficult, and I think this is still not, that debate isn't quite settled. I can't give you a but I just found it fascinating on how, how deep we're able to, to take a look into that. I think we need to use this as an opportunity to have Scott come on the podcast and do a deeper dive into, into this fascinating area.
hope you've enjoyed this recording. If you have any questions or comments about the content of this conversation or the entire episode, please send an email to questions at surfingnash.com. We'll be back next week with a new episode of Surfing the Nash Tsunami. Until then, stay safe, surf on, and we'll see you on the podcast. Bye-bye now. Bye-bye.